Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. One time I was talking to this guy that was antagonistic toward the things of faith, and he looked at me seriously, and he said, you know, I think Christianity is just a crutch. And he meant it as an insult, but I took it as an insight. Because, you know, if you think about it, crutches are for people with broken things. Um, and in that regard, I, I think, you know, maybe, maybe there's truth in that. Maybe, maybe that is, in fact, what it is, because you know, the truth is, I'm broken. We're all broken. And what that guy didn't realize was he's broken, too. But the more I thought about it, I thought, well, no, he's really not a crutch because Jesus is so much more than that. And the crutch doesn't fully identify it. At the end of the day, it's all about walking in dependence before the Father. And if, if you want to call that a crutch, then you can call it what you want. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's a more important principle, insight, precept that we need to fully understand than the principle of walking in dependence. And so I thought we would talk about this today because the degree that I walk in dependence, I walk in victory. And dependence is the central theme of John chapter 6. We've been looking at John chapter 6. It started out with Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And we call it the feeding of the 5,000, but obviously it was more than that because the Bible says it was 5,000 men. So it could have been, if you had women and children, it could have been well over 10,000. And all they have is the sack lunch of some little boy, five barley loaves and two sardines. And Jesus looks at his disciples and, he, and they've already said to him, you know, you need to send the crowd away because uh, they need to buy bread or food somewhere. And Jesus is like, well... Uh, why don't you guys feed them? Essentially, that's what he said. And they're like, well, we've got a kid with five loaves and two fish, but what are those for so many? In other words, there's no way we can do this. And so Jesus does for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And he takes what he has, those five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000. And the principle behind this was not only to demonstrate the authority and power and majesty of Christ, which it clearly does, But the principle was also that those who follow him should depend upon that power. And the problem was the disciples didn't get it. They totally missed the message, you know. Uh, Matthew and Mark both tell this story. In fact, Matthew and Mark both tell both stories that that we're going to see in John chapter 6. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the second story of Jesus walking on the water. And they tell it in sequential order exactly as John does, which is a little unusual. Because, you know, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the Gospels. And three of those are very similar in the historical narrative of telling the story of Jesus. That's Luke, Matthew, and Mark. They call those the synoptic Gospels because they're similar. But John is different. John didn't write his Gospel in order to tell a minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow story of Jesus' life. It was written last, and John wrote his Gospel to fill in the blanks with those stories that were missed by the others. And yet here we are in John chapter 6 telling the same two stories. And in Matthew and Mark, they give us a little additional information. It's not contradictory, it's complementary. And in Matthew and Mark chapter 6, after the walking on the water, after the feeding of the 5,000, he makes this statement in verse 52. It says, for they, that's the disciples, 
had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. That's the feeding of the 5,000. But their heart was hardened. I mean, when Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, the disciples completely missed the point. Now, tap the brakes on that for a second and ask yourself, how did that happen? How is it that you could be in the presence of Jesus who's taking these five little biscuits and two sardines and he's slicing them up and he's passing them out and what, 10,000 people are being fed and then they pick up 12 baskets of the leftovers. How can you witness that and not be uh, totally blown away by the glory of God? And how can you not be so affected and deeply moved that you say to Jesus, you're the guy, I'm going to spend the rest of my life following you, dependent upon you. And yet they somehow did. And I thought, well, how did they miss it? Maybe they were too busy. You know, they were serving. Jesus was handing it out. They're serving. Sometimes in ministry, and you retreat guys need to hear this, you can become so wrapped up in the minutia of it and so consumed with the details of it that you miss the glory of God. We become like Martha in the kitchen instead of Mary in the living room. Martha's banging around pans trying to get dinner ready, and Mary's just at the feet of Jesus worshiping. Maybe that's what happened, or maybe it was pride, you know. Jesus is a rock star. They're the band, you know. Uh, and it would be hard not to allow that to go to your head, to think that you're somehow engaged and responsible for this, and all of the accolades that are shoved onto Jesus are by virtue of proximity sort of spilling over into you. And so it's easy for pride to swell up in us and begin to think more highly of ourselves than we really are. And maybe that was the case. I don't know. But whatever it was, because they missed it, and because they didn't give it, get it, Jesus introduced them to a second crisis. And this time he's going to allow them to get out on the water and uh, spend a little time getting blown around by wind and waves until they reach a point of total neediness so that they will discover the importance of dependency. And you know the principle of this is, if you don't learn it the first time, get ready, there's going to be a second lesson. And if you don't learn it the second time, you'll get a third and a fourth and a fifth. So learn it. Let's start with John chapter 6, verse 15. So Jesus perceived they were intending, that the they is the crowd. He perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. So they're, they're so excited about getting free bread. They just want him to be the kind of political leader that will always sort of fill up their pantry and make sure they've got all their physical needs met. And he doesn't ever buy into that because uh, he realizes uh, what goes along with that. And so he withdrew again to a mountain by himself alone. And, and uh, John doesn't describe this. Matthew gives us some insight as to why Jesus was trying to get alone. Right before he fed the 5,000, had gotten news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And, you know, he's just crushed and brokenhearted by that news. And so he retreats to an isolated place to be alone with God in prayer. This big crowd shows up. And so Jesus being Jesus turns and ministers to the crowd. And then he feeds the 5,000. And when that's done, he's back at the mountain just alone with God. Verse 16, now when evening came, mark that, underline that. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Now remember, Matthew and Mark both tell this story too, and they add a detail here. They didn't just go down and get in the boats, but Jesus made them get in the boats. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. So they're on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, you guys get in the boat. And they're like, well, we don't want to leave you behind. He's like, get in the boat. And so they get in the boat. 
okay? And this is really a setup because Jesus is going to allow things to happen that are going to create a crisis in the lives of these disciples that they need to experience. And so they got in the boat and they started to cross the sea, verse 17, uh, to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they get in the boat, it's evening, they get rowing a little bit, it's dark already, okay? And remember that too. So the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Matthew says it was a contrary wind, it was a wind in their face. And so these guys are, are struggling against the wind. Now remember, the, several of these disciples have spent their lives on the Sea of Galilee. These guys are used to it. Uh, four of them, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They'd been in storms before. And if you can imagine what's going on in that boatload of 12 disciples, you know the salty seamen that have been there many times before are making a lot of fun of the poor landlubbers who are just now in this boat, and the thing's rocking and the sea's rolling, and poor old Matthew's over, the tax collector's over, hanging over the gunnel, uh, giving back to the sea uh, part of those five loaves and two fish. You know what I'm saying? And the old salty dogs are like laughing at him and making fun of him, doing what guys do. And then it didn't let up. And it got worse. And after a while, things start to feel a little out of control, even for the salty dogs. And nobody's laughing anymore. And I, I think it's important to notice that Jesus is breaking them down at the point of their personal confidence. Do you, do you get that? This is the thing many of these guys were very confident in, their seamanship. And yet Jesus is breaking them down at the very point of their confidence, verse 19. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, so they've only gone three or four miles, remember that. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. They look up, okay, I can't even imagine the sight. They look up and Jesus is walking on the sea. One of them said that they were in the, uh, toward the middle of the sea and drawing near to the boat, and look at this, and they were frightened. Why were they frightened? Well, because Mark tells us they thought he was a ghost. And, you know, when you start seeing ghosts, that tells you a little bit about the mindset that's in that boat, right? I mean, these guys are exhausted. They're wrecked. They're terrified. And they look up, and this apparition is sliding across the top of the water. Next thing you know, you start seeing ghosts. When you, when you get in a ghost mindset, you start seeing ghosts. The other day, my little grandson, Finn, was over at the house. He's four years old, and he came up to me, and he said, Pop, Pop. He said, I let the cat out. She was, the cat was in that room where we keep the, the vacuum cleaners. I'm like, where is that? I said, show me where she was. And he said, uh, he said, right there, and he pointed to the closet door under the stairs, which is where we keep the vacuum cleaners. It was really good. He said, at first, Pop, I thought it was a ghost. He says she was scratching. And I'm thinking, why did he think it was a ghost? And then I remembered Andrew said that they had taken him to Home Depot or Lowe's or something, and they've got the Halloween stuff out. And Finn, Finn ain't, he ain't playing. You got that Halloween stuff and you got something that moves, Finn's out of there. He's like, I'm done. I'm done. So he's already kind of got, he's a little bit spooked. And when you get a little bit spooked, you start seeing ghosts. And I said, Finn, it was just the cat. He goes, I know. And I said, Finn, I don't have any ghosts at my house. And about that time, a noise of something happened upstairs. And he stopped and looked at me. <laughs> and then he said, it's okay, Pop. You know, a ghost is just a paper bag floating in the air. I said, yeah, well, why are they so scary then? 
When you get spooked, you see ghosts. And when these 12 men are in that boat and they look up and they see Jesus and they think he's a ghost. Look at verse 20, though. And this is so beautiful. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. I love how Jesus always comes to us with that word. Don't be afraid. He doesn't say, you've got this. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid because it's me. I'm here. I got this. You hear what he's saying? And I've always wondered if walking on the water, if Jesus walking on the water wasn't a way to demonstrate mastery over the thing that they feared the most. And I I thought about this. When you're in a boat and the waves are crashing and the wind is blowing, what is the one thing you fear the most? Being under the water, sinking, drowning. So where is Jesus in this story? He's on top of the water. And I thought about that. Why did Jesus choose to manifest himself in such a miracle as walking on water? And maybe he chose it because Jesus is saying he's already on top of the thing you're afraid of getting buried under. And I think that's a word for us when we're in the storm. That thing that we're most afraid of getting buried under, Jesus is already on top of. So that nothing we face, we face alone. And and the whole principle, the whole idea is wrapped up in this simple word, dependence, right? Verse 21, so they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So let's take a minute and think about this, okay? They've been in this boat. Why did Jesus delay? I mean, let's, let's back up. How long was it between the time they got in the boat and Jesus got to the boat? Do you know? You know, sometimes when you read the Bible, and I've said this before, the Bible has this amazing economy of words. If, if the Bible had fleshed out every detail of every story, it would be so big you couldn't carry it around. And so there's this mastery through the Holy Spirit of an economy of words, but the clues are always left there. So you've got to put on your Sherlock Holmes cap and you've got to kind of look at it. Notice in verse 16 it says that it was evening when they got into the boat. And so that means it's right before sundown. So the next question is, well, when is sundown? So I got to looking and I I discovered that that, uh, Capernaum, where they were in that area of northern Sea of Galilee, is virtually the exact latitude as Monroe, Louisiana. Isn't that weird? 32.87 in Capernaum, 32.88 in Monroe. In other words, the sun goes down there about the same time it goes down here. So the next question is, what time of the year was it? Well, he's already said it was Passover. So we know from that that uh, he said Passover when he was going to feed the 5,000. So we know from that that it's, you know, March or April. What time does it get dark in Monroe in March and April? 7, 7.30-ish, something like that. So the sun's going down 7, 7.30, something like that. So they're getting in the boat, 7, 7.30. It's dark right after they get in. So the sun has gone down. You, you with me? When did Jesus show up? Both Matthew and Mark say that Jesus showed up during the fourth, uh, during the fourth uh, watch. So back up and look at it. The fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. 3 and 6 a.m. So they got in a boat, 7, 7.30, and Jesus shows up 3 a.m., 6 a.m. Let's say 3 a.m. How long is it from 7.30 to 3 a.m.? It's hard, isn't it? Because it's 12, it's a four and a half, it's a three and a half, seven and a half hours. Seven and a half hours. 
That's minimum seven and a half hours. So what happened? Let's, let's back it up. Jesus said, get in the boat. They got in the boat. He went back. He set the crowds away, right? Then he went up on the mountain. And he started praying. And he prayed. 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 And what were the disciples doing? And they rode. And they rode. And they rode. And they rode. And how far did they row? It told us three to four miles. Three to four miles in seven and a half hours. These guys are broken. They're exhausted. They're terrified. Why would they do that? Why did Jesus let them go through the worry and fear, exhaustion and uncertainty? Why did he delay? He let them do that because he wanted them to learn to depend on him. Mark chapter 6, verse 51. Then, when, then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. Now look at this expression. And they were utterly astonished. And they try to express that word in the translation, utterly astonished, but that doesn't really get it. How do I express this word? It means literally to be outside of yourself. They were unhinged, completely unhinged, like babbling idiots, unhinged. They were, here's here's what I would say, they were freaked out, totally freaked out. They're so broken and crushed by this experience, Jesus gets in the boat and you know they're just crying. They're, They're undone. It's like when I reach the point of realizing my own limitations and I can't do this anymore and and I'm about to fail and I'm about to panic and I'm about to, my life's about to be over and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and says, don't be afraid, I'm here, man. I'm already on top of what you're afraid of being under and he gets in the boat and everything calms down and it just, they just break down, weeping. And Matthew adds that they worshiped him, verse Matthew 14, 33. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you certainly, you are certainly God's son. This time they got it. And I think sometimes God has to leave us in those storms for us to get to that point of dependency. I was listening to Parker's testimony. Parker Lee was a Young guy came up through the ministries of our church, served in a variety of things at this church, and then felt called into missions. He went into missions. God assigned him to China. He goes to China to teach English as a second language to reach people through that. And guess where he was assigned? If you have to be assigned one city in China, where do you not want to be? Wuhan, China. That's where Parker was assigned. And when the word got out that the pandemic was coming, Parker got the last train out of Wuhan and he left everything he had behind. Everything in his apartment was long gone. He would never be allowed to come back to China. So he comes home, bounces around a while, uh, looking for opportunities of where God wants him. And he gets called to Mongolia. He goes to Mongolia, which has to be one of the hardest assignments in the world. And he's in Mongolia and there he meets this South Korean girl. They fall in love. They decide to get married. Um, They come back. There's all kinds of entanglements with visas and everything else. And she can't move to the States and they can't do this and that. So they decide to go ahead and get married in a private ceremony. And then later on, they would have the big wedding over in South Korea. And and so Parker's life is starting to look up. He's now in Houston, Texas. He's working with this this, uh, marketplace ministry thing. and, And God's working his life. And Parker gets cancer. Parker's like 35, 36. Parker is incredibly fit. I mean, 
like me. And <laughs> wait, why are you laughing? That wasn't a joke. <laughs> He's even more fit than me. And he gets cancer. And they start the treatment. And his world is shattered. He's down in Houston. Mom and dad are up here. They're trying to get back and forth. Friends are trying to get back. And he's spending a lot of time alone with cancer. And uh, so he calls his wife and says, I could use you. Could you please come and be with me? And she comes over and spends a few days and says, I can't do this. I can't handle this. And she leaves him, goes back to South Korea. So now he's dealing with life-threatening illness and a broken heart. And he introduced us to a verse Wednesday night when he was telling his story of Psalm 77. You know, it's funny how you can read a verse and you can dance right across it until it really touches that part of your soul that you, that you need to hear. And then it lifts it out. And then when, it lifts, when the Holy Spirit lifts it out to you, you can lift it out to others. And here's what it says. Your way was in the sea. And I thought that was interesting because we're talking about walking on water. And your paths are in mighty waters. Hmm. Now look, and your footprints may not be known. I thought about that. You know, when, when Jesus is walking on water, he's not leaving footprints. And in our lives, sometimes when we need him the most and we're in a storm, it's hard to see the footprints. And that's what Parker was saying. He was, he was like, I can't see the footprints. It's like heaven is silent and I'm going through this stuff. And then the, the word comes from God. You just have to depend. You can't see it. You can't know it. You just depend on me. And that's what he did. There are some things that we go through because God wants us to depend. So three quick insights and I'm done. First, there are things I need to feel. I need to feel pain. Look, we don't change without pain. That's just part of it. I hate it, but that's the truth. I mean, we learn far more from our mess-ups, hurts, and heartaches than from our blessings. And that's, parents, you need to understand that. Let your kids skin their knee. Let them break a wrist. Let them do things that might be perceived as a little dangerous because in the process of that, they develop competency and resilience. Jordan Peterson made this statement. If you overcoddle people and you protect them from everything that is sharp, you make them dull and stupid and narcissistic and it's a really bad idea. Quit helicopter parenting. Quit trying to mow the lawn in front of them. Let them mow their own lawn. Because God's a better parent than we are. And He will allow us to go through pain because there are things I've got to feel if it's going to affect me. The second, I need to know my limitations. He's got to bring us to the end of ourselves, right? God has to replace our self-confidence with God-confidence. And that's where He had to bring those disciples. They were so full of self-confidence. He tried to teach them, you can't feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. I can do that, so depend on me. They didn't get it. He said, okay, you don't get it. Here, get in that boat. Stay there for seven and a half hours. Let me, let me toss up a little storm. And while you're in that storm, let me teach you what you can't do. We've got to come to the end of our says, look, failure tends to knock the shine off of overconfidence. And in that moment when I realized my own limitations and my own incapacity, in that moment, I can grow dependent. 
and I've got to learn dependence. When I recognize my limitations, I walk in dependency. And when I walk in dependency, I walk in faith. And when I walk in faith, I walk in power. His power, not mine. You see, you take me back to that feeding the 5,000. You give me five loaves and two fish, and I can feed one person. But if you give Jesus that same five loaves and two fish, He can feed 10,000. And that's what God wants to do in your life. He doesn't want you feeding one person. He wants through you to feed 10,000. But you've got to become dependent for that to happen, which means you've got to be willing to spend some time in the storms. But when you're in the storm, learn from the storm. I want to say to some of you guys, how many storms are you going to have to go through before you finally learn? It's like, I just keep going through storms, yeah? When are you going to learn? It's like, take another lap around Mount Sinai, Israel, until you learn your lesson. Because God wants you to learn you're incapable. I'm capable of very little, but he's capable of anything. And remember, he's already on top of what I'm most afraid of being under. And so will you give your life fully over to Jesus to depend on him? Look, you can't depend on who you don't know. So it starts with a relationship. I've got to know Jesus. I can't depend on a God I don't know. So I got to know the one that made me. I've got to know the one that designed me. I got to know the one that died for me so that I can know the power of the one who indwells me. If you've never come to faith in Jesus, that's where you start. But if you've come to faith in Jesus and you've walked with Jesus and you know Jesus, how many storms is it going to take before you say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to live in dependence. And all that I know about me, I'm going to give to all that I know about you. So I ask you to do through me what I can't do myself. And I'm going to live my life with God confidence, not self-confidence. Would you do that today? Would y'all just pray with me right now? We've seen guys get baptized this morning. Warren came up to me and said, an 85-year-old guy came to him this morning and said, I need to get baptized. How cool is that? But baptism is just a symbol of giving your heart fully over to Jesus. And if you've never done that, then you're out of the relationship. Do it right now. It's like this. Dear Father, I give myself to you. I confess my sin. I admit my need. Change my life. If you've never done that, say that prayer right now. Let God change your life. Now, for those of us who know Jesus, we keep holding back. We keep trying to do it ourselves. Would you just say, God, from this day forward, I'm going to depend on you. And every time I stop, remind me again. Heavenly Father, it's hard for us to be grateful for pain. It's hard for us to be thankful for storms. Your word says, in everything, give thanks. And Father, while we can't thank you for the pain and we can't thank you for the storm, we can thank you in it. Because we know that in it, you're breaking our stubborn will. You're bringing us to a point of realization that we need Jesus, not just for our salvation, but for every day of our life. And Father, there are people in this room and over the air who have said to you, I depend on you. God, empower them. Step into their boat, stop their storm. And Father, give them the security and assurance of knowing that when they're out of control, you're in control. Father, I pray for those that have given their heart to Jesus this morning. 
that just that simple prayer of acknowledgement of I know that I need a Savior and I choose to believe in Jesus. I confess my sin. I admit my need. I trust you. I cry out to you, Father. I thank you that in that moment, salvation happens when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. And so, Father, I pray you'd give them the courage to make that private commitment a public commitment. And we'll glorify you through it. Thank you, Jesus, for being what we could never be. In Christ's name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.